Hello and welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 147. The Drabblecast is a weekly flash fiction audio magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. So, this week's show, The Future, indeterminate and unpredictable, as much as we sometimes wish it wasn't. Eight months from now, you may tragically lose your ear to a rogue thresher shark off the side of a boat. Or maybe you'll somehow become best friends with Dave Coulier instead. Cut it out. There's really no way of knowing. Maybe you'll become a millionaire. Or maybe you'll lose a million dollars. Long suitcase, douchebag. Who knows? But maybe there is a way to beat the odds, even though we can't tell the future. We bring you Drabble News. Taylor, Michigan. A Michigan man has recently won the World Rock Paper Scissors Championship in Toronto. Tim Conrad clinched the title after five hours of play and nine matches at the Steam Whistle Brewery on Saturday night. Okay, so at least they had booze. Facing off against his best friend in the first All-American final in championship history, Conrad beat Tom Butkin with paper covering rock. It's over. When I say it is over! Organizers say Conrad dressed up as Captain America during the competition to honor his home country. Yeah, thanks, buddy. Conrad takes $7,000 home in prize money. The championship was organized by the World Rock Paper Scissors Society. That's right, folks. There's a World Rock Paper Scissors Society. Of course, I had to look into this. The Paper Scissors Stone Club was founded in London, England in 1842, immediately following the issuance of an 1842 law declaring any decision reached by the use of the process known as Paper Scissors Stone between two gentlemen acting in good faith shall constitute a binding contract. Agreements reached in this manner are subject to all relevant contract and tort law. The law was seen as a slap in the face to the growing number of enthusiasts who played it strictly as a recreational activity, since for many constables it was taken to mean that the game could no longer be played simply for sport. The club was founded and officially registered to provide an environment free from the long arm of the law where enthusiasts could come together and play for honor. If you think this is a joke or a hoax, people, go to www.wprs.com and snoop around for yourself. The place reeks of authentic dorkdom. They have extensive forums, a series of graded online training videos, tons of blogs and articles, and even an official rock-paper-scissors strategy guide. This is from their website. Contrary to what you might think, Rock, Paper, Scissors is not simply a game of luck or chance. While it is true that from a mathematical perspective, the optimum strategy is to play randomly, humans, try as they might, are terrible at trying to be random. In fact, often humans in trying to approximate randomness become quite predictable. So, knowing that there is always something motivating your opponent's actions, there are a couple of tricks and techniques that you can use to tip the balance in your favor. So, for all you Drabble folk at home, here are a few tactics for you to use next time you want to swindle the knickers right out from under some bloke and have it stand up in court. Here are some tips on how to beat other people as sad and annoying as yourself wanting to play rock, paper, scissors competitively. Rule number one. Rock is for rookies. In RPS circles, a common mantra is, Rock is for rookies because males have a tendency to lead with rock on their opening throw. 
It has a lot to do with the idea that rock is perceived as strong and forceful, so guys tend to fall back on it. Go Green Bay Packers! This tactic is best done in pedestrian matches against someone who doesn't play that much and generally won't work in tournament play. The second step in the Rock is for Rookies line of thinking is to play scissors as your opening move against a more experienced player. Since you know they won't come out with Rock, it's too obvious, duh, scissors is your obvious safe move to win against paper or stalemate itself. One, two, two three, three, go! Scissors. Ah, I see you are a student of Master Zensu as well. <gasps> and rule number three. When all else fails, go with paper. Haven't a clue what to throw next? Then go with paper. Why? Statistically, in competition play, it's been observed that scissors is thrown the least often. Specifically, it gets delivered 29.6% of the time, so it slightly under-indexes against the expected average of 33.33% by 3.73%. Well, there you go. People, I'm amazed here. Rock, paper, scissors, or some variation has been going on since the ancient times, and apparently it's still going on strong, even evolving and keeping up to date with modern gaming technology, I hear. I just came across this promo for an RPG game that I'd never even heard about. A generation has passed since their tenuous alliance, and a dark wind once again stirs over the plains. The web-footed shamans of Kazalal awake to dreams of smoke and ash. In trembling voices, they whisper to their chieftains. The drums of war thunder once again. Three mighty forces. There's a 33.33% chance that victory will be ours. But only one is fated to rule. Look inside yourself, my lord. Let your heart guide the way. In a world of darkness, some fight for honor. One, two, three, go! Scissors! And others fight for power. One, One two, two, three, three go! go. Oh. Paper! Paper covers rock. I win. That's my cricket set now. You're contractually bound. Blizzard Entertainment proudly invites you to experience the adventure. Oh, come on, Stan. You said best out of five, not best out of three. The intrigue. We have always chosen rock. It is the way of our kind. What the halfling speaks is heresy. The danger. <laughs> not paper. Anything but paper. Voted PC Gamers RPG of the Year 2009. Rock, paper, scissors. The shadows of Zagar. Let your heart guide the way. RPS, the RPG. The fate of the world is in your hands. Time for a drabble, huh? Drabbles are stories exactly 100 words. Send yours into Drabblecast at yahoo.com or post it up in the Drabble section of the Drabblecast forums, exactly the place where he pulled this week's story from. Time Machine by Christopher K. Monroe. Chris is a touring actor and occasional stand-up comedian in Western Canada who, as a New Year's resolution, is writing a short story a day for as much of 2010 as he can manage. Check out his blog at munistories.blogspot.com. He's utterly addicted to the Drabblecast and is thrilled to be appearing on it for the first time. He hopes it's not his last. 
You can't build a time machine out of spare parts you found at a yard sale, she told me. But when my machine whirred to life, lights flashing and gears turning, opening a rift in the very fabric of time through which both it and I disappeared, I proved her wrong. Now, trapped 3,000 years in the past, staring at the wreckage of my creation, unable to buy parts to repair it, I realize what she meant. You can build a time machine out of spare parts you found at a yard sale, but not a very good one. Oh, those men. So stubborn, strong and forceful, always choosing rock, always sending ourselves back to ancient Sumerian times and time machine. If only in retrospect, huh, buddy? Doesn't matter if you're a chick or a dude. It's hard taking advice from someone about the future when you feel like you've got the odds figured out. It either feels like they're crapping on your parade and doubting you, or they're blindly optimistic and haven't really thought things out. And that leads us into this week's story, Cassie by Tim Pratt. Tim Pratt's work has appeared in the Best American Short Stories, The Year's Best Fantasy, and other nice places, including here on the Drabblecast. He's currently publishing an online serial urban fantasy novella called Bone Shop. Check it out at www.marlamason.net slash boneshop. Helping out in the narration this week, two lovely women, both amazing writers and podcasters, Abby Hilton and Mer Lafferty. Abby Hilton is an ICU nurse and amateur naturalist. She writes fantasy in her current project, a serialized novel called The Guild of the Cowrie Catchers, is at episode six, and I'm waiting to see what happens next. No, wait, actually I read one of the characters in it. I already finished book one. Yep, Bruce Willis is dead the whole time. Crazy twist, you're gonna love it. Check it out at cowriecatchers.com. And Mer Lafferty is back, after single-handedly causing the great Drabble Schism slash Civil War back in March of last year with their stories in episode 105. They were a call to arms for all the pie hunters and cake eaters amongst our audience. Mer's podcast, I Should Be Writing, is awesome, and anyone out there who enjoys picking up the pen and creating worlds should go subscribe. The show features advice, talk on writing, interviews with pro writers, feedback, and all sorts of stuff. Murr's first full-length novel, Playing for Keeps, which was released in print by Swarm Press in August 2008, won the 2008 Parsec Award for Best Novel and reached number one in science fiction on Amazon.com. You can go and buy it there, and or listen to it as a free podcast novel at playingforkeepsnovel.com. So, without further ado, Cassie by Tim Pratt. Cassie leaned against the roulette table and pushed all her chips to 23. Place your bets on 23. It's a winner, I'm telling you, she said, stirring her whiskey sour with her little finger. The other gamblers ignored her. They were a mixed bunch, middle-aged men in ties and shiny suits, women in evening gowns, young men with gleaming teeth and haunted expressions. Roulette was a sucker's game, unless you were Cassie. The bored Cherokee man in the tuxedo spun the wheel and dropped the ball with a clatter. The ball stopped at slot 23, and the gamblers moaned. Except Cassie. The dealer pushed her winnings toward her. 
Cassie finished her drink in a single gulp and carried her chips in a basket toward the payoff window. Casinos always depressed her after a while. This one had seen better days. The Cherokee Indian Reservation would never compete with Vegas or Atlantic City, but it drew a fair number of low-income tourists who couldn't afford those places. She walked across threadbare red carpet through a haze of smoke and the smell of sweat and liquor. She passed the whirring, clanging slot machines and paused by an old man with a fixed expression and a plastic cup full of change. She found something touching about the way he'd combed his hair over his bald spot. You're not going to hit with this machine, she said. You're wasting your money. Go away, lady, he muttered, not even looking at her. She patted his shoulder. She concentrated on him, looking farther into his future. She sighed. You left your pills in the car. You'll forget them and have a heart attack in the middle of the night. Your wife won't even wake up. Yeah, sure thing, lady. Hey, you want to kiss my quarter for luck? There's no such thing as luck. She walked on. She tried not to think of him dying, clutching his chest and spasming on the motel bed. Dwelling on the unchangeable future never did any good. She'd lost her mind for a while, a long time ago, trying to warn the Trojans about the wooden horse. She honestly couldn't remember those days, except flashes during dreams. Laocoon and his sons crushed by serpents, Troy's walls collapsed in flames, the Greeks tearing her away from the safety of Athena's temple. She'd spent that whole war shouting warnings to people who wouldn't listen. She'd done the same thing during the French Terror and both world wars. She had to warn people, deliver the bad news, but she finally learned not to care, to make herself not care, and that saved her. She cashed in her chips. Nice dress, the cashier said. Her red cocktail dress showed off her breasts to maximum effect, but he didn't stare. He's sort of cute, she thought. You'll meet a girl next week. She'll have sex with you and then steal your television while you're sleeping. He scratched his head. Um, I get off in a few hours, he said. Want to get a drink later? I don't see that happening. She walked into the dark parking lot and lit a clove cigarette. Lights twinkled on the mountains. An owl swooped over the Wigwam Motel sign across the street. Oh, shit. She muttered and sucked hard on her cigarette. If only she could see the whole future laid out before her, like a casino restaurant buffet. Instead, she only saw what she focused on, or what loomed directly in the path of her life, and sometimes she didn't get much advance notice, even for big things. Like this. The owl landed atop the illuminated plastic teepee that advertised the casino. It spread wings and flew to the ground, then shifted to the shape of a crouching woman. The woman stood and walked toward Cassie. She was tall and muscular, with close-cropped hair. She wore a white tank top and cargo pants. The woman pushed her sunglasses to the top of her head and crossed her arms. The second prettiest goddess on Olympus, Cassie said. Want a drag? She waved her clove like an incense stick. Smoking is unwise, Athena said. She raised an eyebrow and nodded toward the casino. So is gambling. I expected more of you. Gambling is dangerous, Cassie agreed. But not for me. I didn't imagine you would ever use your gift in such a way. Cassie shrugged. Things change. What brings you here? I spoke to Atropos some months ago, and she told me that she'd never cut your life thread. We all believed you died at Clytemnestra's hand that night in the palace. Cassie shook her head. She remembered that, at least. I almost let her kill me. 
I saw the blow coming, of course. I was ready to die by then. My father deposed, Troy gone. But at the last moment, I changed my mind. I escaped. Clytemnestra claimed to have killed you. She considered me a rival. She preferred for everyone to believe I was dead. Cassie shivered and wished for a scarf. Apollo gave me immortality as well as the gift of prophecy. I guess I can still die by violence or accident, but since I can see the future, that's not a problem. Apollo wanted to make me miserable, but I've learned to live with my curse. I can't keep the world from going to hell, but I can stay alive. She patted her purse. I can even make a good living. Athena squatted on her heels. Cassie liked her new look. Modern and competent, deadly and beautiful. Athena would probably choose Kevlar over polished armor now, though. The goddess of wisdom squinted up at Cassie. I never asked you. Why did you spurn Apollo's love? Cassie laughed. Since when do you ask about love? You're the maiden, the warrior virgin. She sat cross-legged on the sidewalk and stubbed out her cigarette. Apollo gave me the gift of foreknowledge, and I knew immediately that our relationship wouldn't last. I knew he'd curse me for leaving him, too, but I couldn't do anything about that. You believe the future is preordained, then? Troy burned, didn't it? The Titanic sank. No one listens when I warn them. I can't make anything change. Come with me, Athena said. She stood and walked into the casino. Cassie followed her to the cash window. Get some chips. Cassie pushed the bills through the slot to the cashier. Are you sure you don't want to... Yes, I'm sure, she said absently. Seems like you can't stay away from me, lady, the cashier said, grinning. Are you sure you don't want to get that drink? Cassie took her chips without speaking. The cashier sighed and looked away. Athena tugged Cassie's elbow and led her to the roulette table. Place your bet. Cassie shrugged and took her place at the table. She put all her chips on 17. Are you sure about that? Athena said. That's the winner? Cassie rolled her eyes. Yes, what's your point? Athena crossed her arms. The wheel spun and the ball dropped. Cassie didn't bother looking at it. She waited for her winnings. Athena put one booted foot on the edge of the roulette table and shoved. The dealer and the gambler shouted as the heavy table fell. The roulette ball bounced across the carpet and chips spilled around their feet. The pit boss rushed toward them, shouting. What the hell are you doing? Cassie demanded. You lose. I guess it wasn't such a sure thing after all. Cassie blinked at her. The pit boss grabbed Athena's forearm. She turned and pulled his wrist, tugging him off balance. She slung him hard and he careened into a blackjack table. Cards went flying. Everyone in the casino turned to look at the commotion, except for a few die-hard slot players, including the fixated old man with the upcoming heart attack. His eyes never left the spinning lemons and cherries. Think about it, Athena said. She sprinted for the front door. Cassie cursed and trotted after her. The ball should have landed on 17, she thought, breathing hard. Athena ran for the Wigwam Motel. She went through a dirty glass door into the lobby. Cassie caught up with her by a soda machine. She took off her left shoe and rubbed her sore foot. Why'd you do that? That was a week's winnings I just blew, Cassie demanded. You used to be one of my worshippers, Athena said, feeding change into the vending machine. If your brain hasn't rotten completely, think about what you just saw. She pressed a button and took a bottle of blue sports drink from the machine. What do you want from me? Cassie demanded. I want you to follow your once wise heart. 
She drank from her bottle, draining it in a long gulp, then threw it into a garbage can. She pushed open the glass door, letting in a draft of cool mountain air. Without looking back, she transformed into an owl and took to the night sky. Cassie wiped her face. She walked toward the casino thoughtfully. She hesitated by a row of cars, then sought out a particular automobile. She stopped at the old blue Datsun and tugged on the passenger door. The old man, so intent on getting to the slot machine, had left his door unlocked. She opened the glove compartment and rummaged until she found a small bottle of pills. She waited by the door for a while until the dispirited old man from the slot machines approached. He mumbled and rubbed his head, staring at the gravel and his feet. He saw Cassie and said, Who are you? Cassie smiled and held out the bottle. My pills, he said. He squinted at his watch. It's past time to take them, too. He unscrewed the cap and deftly flipped three pills into his palm. He dry-swallowed them. Thanks, he said. How'd you know I'd forget? You, you know my wife? Cassie patted his hand silently. Then she walked into the casino to see if the cute cashier still wanted to have a drink. Was our story. Hope you enjoyed. No fate but what we make. Life lessons gleaned from the Terminator movies. Let's do story feedback. Christmas special ran a two-part special of John Agard's story, The Golden Age of Firescapes. Mixed reviews. The story was definitely targeted to a certain type. Zucker said, if I learned anything from this episode, it's that the Drabblecast needs more spontaneous lacrosse games to disturb semi-tense and almost romantic moments. Fred said, after listening to this, I had the incredible urge to don green tights, a red cape, and leap out of my kitchen window. I think a little more schlitz and ionized yeast would do the trick. Seriously, a great tribute to old-time radio without being kitschy or cliched, both in the story itself and the overall production value. A. Hilton, voice of Athena in this week's story, gave a great review, saying, I thought this was a good story, although it made me feel melancholy in the way that realistic stories do. It emphasized the brevity of even great success and the string of bittersweet almosts and nearly perfects that characterize real life and real people. There is no supervillain to fight against, just an element, fire, and human stupidity. In a novelization of the Marshal's life, he would have had a torrid affair with Rita, but, in fact, they never quite got there. The golden age of his career is almost over before it begins. The obsessive behavior that brings him fleeting success also destroys him, and he never gets to say, I told you so. The city goes on, unfazed, without him. Well, there you go. Get up in our discussion forums and join the family. First time poster Dame did this week, and she's this week's 100 character Twitfix story winner with her story, Wife Swap. Here it is. Now we'll see who has the easiest job, said John, before smearing lipstick onto his wife's mouth in the shaving mirror. Ooh, you know we have a weekly contest going on. Think you can write an awesome story with only 100 characters? 
post it in the TwitFix section of our discussion forums. We'll post you on our Twitter feed if you win. So the kick-ass donor of the week this week is... Sasha. Sasha's a girl from Holland, and yes, she does love cheese. Just a few months ago, she started a new career, learning to teach. Before that, she was a computer programmer, and after a period of illness, she figured she didn't really want to do that anymore. So now she's in adult education and having a blast with it. When she was ill, she discovered audio fiction and was love at first here. She downloaded every audiobook she could find and ran into a few short fiction podcasts. Drabblecast was one of them, and we stole her heart. She's got three wonderful cats who love bringing her giant earthworms, clearly not of the Mongolian variety. Thanks, Sasha, for being so awesome and for helping out. If you enjoy our show, go to www.drabblecast.org and throw a couple bucks at us, or a couple hundred bucks, <laughs> whatever. You know, it's all good. Or you can click our $5 a month automatic subscription option and really pull your own weight. We need your support to help pay authors for their work and to offset all the production costs. A little bit goes a long way if a lot of folks are pitching in. And hey, thanks to this week's episode artist, Philip Pomfrey, a.k.a. Praxis. Philip lives in Scotland and he's a huge fan of the Drabblecast. He's worked with special needs children quite a lot, and he doesn't have much to plug in the professional art sense, but he does like walks in the park, art house movies, and experimental Asian cooking. And he's got a good sense of humor, obviously. And he's almost house trained, and we really appreciate that about you, Phil. Thanks for the art, too. So that's our show. If you know someone who would enjoy our show, why not share it with them? Copy, burn, whatever. This mess is free. Just don't change it or sell it because of our Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. If you have iTunes, you could write us a nice review, and that would rock. Or if you don't, you could just blog about us. Share the fun. We'll see you next week. Our staff is made up of co-editors Kendall Marchman, Luke Coddington, and yours truly, Norm Sherman, reminding you to let your heart guide the way. Yeah.